Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Sam Black Sessions. Here I have a, a, a very famous guest, I might say, in the in the B in the BNI in the BNI group. And uh, I'm famous in the BNI group, yeah, in, yeah, the, in the BNI group. <laughs> Jamie Abbott, welcome. Pleasure to be. Pleasure to have you here. Thanks for having me. I love it how you just referred to me as famous when five minutes ago you're like, so tell me about yourself. <laughs> Who are you? Well, this is like unplanned. So that's how I like it. Raw, yeah, it's raw. Good. You really get to in the nuts of it and um, unpack everything. Yeah, absolutely. Just natural, unscripted. Definitely. You get to learn about me in the meantime. <laughs> one to one. Yeah. <laughs> a live one to one. Which sounds dodgy. So we have to do these one to ones in our BNI group every week. And we- Sam, you said to me, well, I need to do a one-to-one. Why don't you just come on my podcast exactly. and we can do it live? Kill two birds with one stone. Yeah, absolutely. It's smart. Well, no, actually, I was quite impressed with, obviously, in B&I, we do the, the presentations every week. And when you got up, I was uh, quite blown away by your track record. So, journalist um, in pol- politics and now public speaker or teaching people how to speak publicly, um, but also with a lot of enthusiasm and being confident in front of the camera and in groups of people. That's right, plus RAF officer. So I've been in the Air Force for 16 years in the reserves, spent six months in Afghanistan in 2011, and that's where I set up the very first media training package in uh, in Afghanistan and got a lot of experience from that. Then I came back from Afghanistan after having worked in the media for the decade prior to that, had a go at politics, made lots of mistakes as a spokesperson, not you know, a huge amount of mistakes, but I'd get off stage and think, oh, I didn't really nail that or I could have handled that question better. And so after that election campaign in 2013, it was the election, I set up my own media training package to show others how they should do it and how to avoid mistakes that I had made. Beautiful. Well, let's, uh, let's just sort of wind it right back because I'm, I'm quite intrigued to see, well, firstly, like what kind of person were you uh, were growing up in, in school? Um, and have you always been, you know, this confident, well-spoken person, you know, going back when you were younger in your teenage years? I love that. No one ever asks me about high school days. There you it's, go. Yeah, it's a first. Yeah, so I, I loved debating, loved public speaking, the mock trials put me up in front of any audience. I've always loved it. So I guess I've always been a performer. So I used to sing around here in Newcastle, Johnny Young Talent School type thing. I was a singer and an MC and just loved being up on stage, I suppose. Used to want to be famous, if if I have to be honest. I now don't want that, having had a bit of a taste for it as a journalist and politician. But yeah, always wanted to do that. So I embarked on a career of journalism because I thought... Well, I'll get to read the news and I loved finding out information first and then presenting it to other people. And so I did a journalism degree, got to uni in Bathurst, which was where all the big time journalists always had gone, like Andrew Denton and Amanda Keller and Chris Bath and Jessica Rowe, all the big names. And I remember sitting there in the lecture hall and I looked around the room and there was 80 blonde, beautiful, blue-eyed, gorgeous girls who all wanted to host Getaway, this TV show. (laughs) And I thought, shit, I need to compete with these girls. So I just made a decision there and then to not party. I was 18 in Bathurst and I thought I'm just going to go everywhere and do work experience. 
So I went to Channel 7, Channel 9, Channel 10, ABC, Today Tonight. And I ended up getting some casual work at Today Tonight. I'm not sure if you're old enough yes, to remember, I remember that show. Yes, <laughs> And um, it was like tabloid journalism. So I was about 19 and I was doing some casual work for them. And they would come up to me and they would say, as a junior... Jamie, we're doing a story on yogurt. Can you find a family in Sydney who eats a kilo of yogurt a day? And you'd get on the phone and you'd you'd call gyms, you'd call health food stores. I actually just... used to eat it when I used to go to the gym, a kilo of yogurt. Used to... <laughs> Where were you when I needed you back then? I could have put you on TV. A, a kilo yeah. of yogurt and a chicken. Every day. No, not Like that, if I had nothing to eat, I'd go to the supermarket, buy a whole chicken and a whole yogurt, and that would be my lunch throughout the day. <laughs> and some broccoli, huh? <laughs> Yeah, so, I mean, that would have been useful 20 years ago. But then I'd, I'd do that, and then you'd put those people on the TV, and then the next day you'd come in and say, oh, we need to do a story on big TVs. Can you find someone in Sydney who's just bought this big plasma TV? This is back in 2001, and plasma TVs were out. And I'd get on the phone and try and find someone. That was what I was doing. But it really gave me an insight into tabloid journalism, so how journalists try and get you know, you to say things you don't want to say, how to manipulate people and get them to say sound bites that you're hearing in your head that would make great television. And so as a 19-year-old, still at uni, I've got a lot of experience as a journalist from that side. And so now I think back 20 years later, I'm now helping people to avoid answering unwanted questions and how to master their message. So that certainly helped. And then from today tonight, I went to 2GB radio in Sydney and was reading the news. As a 20 year old, I was still at uni and I would go to Sydney. It's a funny story. I used to do my classes at Bathurst Uni, jump in the car, drive to Sydney on a Friday afternoon, and I would read the news from 9.30 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. And I paid a friend of a friend of a friend $40 to crash on their couch on the Saturday. I would do it that sa the same thing Saturday night, 9.30 p.m. to 5.30 a.m. Sunday morning, finish at 5.30 a.m., drive the two and a half hours back to Bathurst and do it all again. There you so go. I worked really hard, didn't party, sacrificed those early 20s uni life just to try and get a foot in the door. And it worked. 2GB Radio ended up giving me a, a full-time job. I hadn't even finished uni yet, so it paid off. There you go. So it sounds like there was obviously a lot of dedication um, put towards the working life. Was, there, was that always instilled of you, or where, do you think that came from your parents? or where? No, not at all. Um, my parents never pushed me to do anything, actually. They never pushed me to even do homework. It was all kind of self-initiated. Uh, so I don't know what came first, whether I was always that way and they didn't need to, or they just didn't do it. So I did it anyway. I don't know. I can't think back that far. Uh, I'm 40 now, remember? <laughs> We're talking like ages ago, pre-Facebook. Um, that's how long ago it was. But yeah, I think I just always had this competitiveness in me anyway. And when I got to uni and I saw those gorgeous girls and I knew that it was going to be competitive in journalism... I thought, wow, I just need to give myself the edge. And that's why I just made cups of coffee for journalists. I remember Sonia Kruger, yeah. she hosts yeah, yeah. Big Brother and all those shows. She was so kind to me. Other journalists weren't. They treated me like shit because I was the work experience girl. Yeah. But she took me under her wing one day and, and said, you drive with me, Jamie. And she said, ask me any questions you want. And I was a 19-year-old nobody. And she just was so kind, and I'll never forget that. So there were certain people along the way who really did almost mentor me. Yeah, And beautiful. I really am grateful for that. Amazing. And it's obviously super important to have those people throughout the journey in, in your life. So with, with journalism, I'm assuming it's quite 
hard knacker going, right? Like you got to put yourself in uncomfortable situations, even asking questions that you may not want to ask. Is is public? Do you do you think that's a skill that you can learn over time, or is it naturally there as well? Uh, a bit of both. Um, you can learn on the job. I just I'm shuddering thinking of all the mistakes that I made. <laughs> I remember I, I went because 2GB was like the rugby league station, right? And the Blues had played the Maroons. It was the day after State of Origin. And you literally would get into the newsroom to start your shift. And they'd say, Jamie, get out there and interview Brad Fittler. <laughs> and he was the captain of the New South Wales team. And I hadn't even had a chance to find out who won. Yeah. And then I turned up to this press conference. I was the only journalist with my 2GB microphone. And I said, oh, so you're obviously, you know, pretty sad about the loss. <laughs> And he said, um, we won? We're from 2GB. <laughs> I felt so stupid. We're the rugby league station. And then I thought, well, I'll never make that mistake again. And then I, mean, I think this is pre-iPhone, so I couldn't even check on my phone on the way. You yeah. know what I mean? Like yeah. I had to have logged on. And then another time, Rudolph Giuliani, he was the former New York mayor when September 11 happened. This was 2003. He came to Australia and it was a huge press conference and it was all about getting that 2GB microphone in the camera on, on TV that night, you know, for visibility, for branding, for PR. And I put this 2GB microphone up on the lectern and I sat down and he started the press conference and sure enough, it flopped, <laughs> just <laughs> fell down. And I thought, oh shit. And then I had started to get up and this cameraman from Channel 7 said, don't you even think about it. I was like, just, I knew I was going to get in trouble when this world, you know, figure was on the news that night and there was 2UE, our competitor's microphone and my microphone had flopped down. And so, yeah, you kind of like, there are things that you learn on the job. And then oh, another thing I remember, I was live on air during Alan Jones's breakfast show. And you know, the brand Renault? Yeah. Well, you know how it's spelt, Renault? <laughs> pronounced. I think it was like, a, I don't know what it was, some motoring story. And I said, and he won in a Renault. <laughs> For all these complaints, like hundreds of calls came in. And yeah, I'm surprised I didn't get the sack. But my point is you learn on the job. You learn very fast. It's very fast paced, especially now, even 20 years later, it's more fast paced and competitive. The world of media than it ever has been. As a PR person, that's great because you can just give a journalist who's so busy and under strict deadlines a copy of a media release and they'll print it word yeah. for word. If it's well written and it's exclusive for them, there's no reason why they won't print it word for word. Yeah. So it's quite good to give them quality stories now working on this side. Most definitely. I think the biggest thing to take away from this is that you actually put yourself in those situations. I know like before me jumping behind the camera, it was very obviously awkward, but the more you do it, the more comfortable you get with it. Um, putting yourself up on stage, public speaking. Yes, it seems very scary at the time, but I think that that uneasiness eventually becomes a bit more calmer and you start enjoying yourself. So true. I mean, it's the same with anything. This time last year, I had never even gone live on Instagram. But I had gone to Afghanistan, I've done political debates, I've read the news, gone live on national television when I was running for politics, but put me on an Instagram live and I just shit my pants. <laughs> and so I think, yeah, once you do it, you go live and you think, oh, that wasn't so scary or probably could have improved it here or there. You do it again and again. And you're right. You learn by putting yourself out there and making little mistakes along the way so you can learn. Most definitely. I remember my first TikTok that I, I did. <laughs> Oh, it was so embarrassing. What was it? What was your first TikTok? Um, well, I think my third one it was called The Gunslinger. 
tell me more. Tell me more. Well, you know how you do dances on TikTok? Well, I had, um, it was like types of property you purchase or what's good in, in a property. It was like sunlight, owner, occupier appeal. And then I had, you know, that cowboy movie. Do, do. <laughs> I think so. Yeah. yeah. And, and then I had like the gunslinger. I was like, and then all the, like the little, um, the names popped up of street appeal, big, uh, high ceilings. Night functional functional layout. Anyway. Did it go viral? No. <laughs> we'll have to go and check it out. Your third video. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Look, one day it might. It might. Who knows? Yeah. Who knows? Yeah. Well, let's go back to um, the RAF. Look, personally, before I got into the BA space, I was actually working at the RAF base at, at Williamtown. You're doing sheet metal. Sheet you? metal. Yeah. yeah. Aircraft maintenance engineer. And I've worked at other RAF, um, other military bases in Brisbane. So I know it's very regimented. There's lots of rules, um, guidelines you need to stick by, um, and obviously you can't step outside of the the, the, the tape, if that's what you like to put it. Mm. Like coming up against some of those people, I'm assuming they're quite intimidating. <laughs> you ask questions that no one else asks me. I love it. Oh, there you go. This is the fifth podcast I've done this week, and I've not had any of these questions before, so oh. it's good. Um, that You think I'm intimidated by them? Is that No, like as in... Um, let's say in the RAF, like I'm assuming you dealt with generals and people all the time, like, yeah. yeah, air commodores, yeah. yeah, and they're quite. Would they be intimidating speaking to? Or? Yeah, it's funny because I've only ever worked in that level. So in my role, I was at the RAF base in in Williamtown for 14 years. In the same role, where I worked in a headquarters to a one star, which is a you know general air commodore. And that's all I ever knew. But then I would talk to some junior officers who would say, oh, so intimidating. And so I didn't really know any different. And I was always advising at that level and working in that headquarters environment. I literally came in off the street into that environment. So I don't know any different. And they're just regular people. Um, but I feel very privileged to have had that experience as well and, and being able to help them in their media interviews and, and their speeches and all that sort of thing. So... I guess for everyone else it would be, but for me, I kind of came in in an unusual way. I actually came straight in off the street as a flight lieutenant. So as an officer, I, didn't, I went straight into that and I hadn't even done any training and it was sink or swim. So people were calling me ma'am and I didn't even know anything <laughs> about the ranks. And it wasn't until nine months after I had been in uniform that I did officer training school. And so that was hard actually for me because everyone else had done you know 17 weeks officer training school or gone to ADFA the Australian Defence Force Academy and I had to either prove myself or I could have failed one time I had my name tag on the wrong side <laughs> <laughs> I remember that clearly we were rehearsing because I would often MC military parades and I was up on the podium pretending to be the, the guest of honour and I had my name tag on the wrong side I just got my name tag oh, okay. and I went and picked it up from the clothing store I'd been there for a couple of months and I noticed all these people on parade in the rehearsal were laughing at me and I, I was mortified but luckily that's probably the worst mistake I made yeah why is that a big no-no oh just... it's uniform it's very oh, strict okay. so yeah you put your you know, your name tag on one side and your medals and your ribbons on the other side and okay. your rank slides have to be perfect everything has to be pretty um is pretty strict as far as even when the crease in your shirt is ironed oh really yeah and you know your if you're wearing a tie if you're wearing a belt has to be lined up a certain way so yeah I, luckily for me i had what they call a warrant officer disciplinary a wod who their their role is to do a lot of things they do they run parades they also pull people up if they are 
you know, not saluting or wearing their hat wrong or their uniforms dishevelled. And so I was actually partnered up with Do they a have WOD. Like a baton? They have a stick. <laughs> they have this stick, which is uh, to measure things on parade. You know, the amount, of the distance people are standing, and they walk around with this stick all the time. And I was partnered up with one of those guys who luckily helped me because he could see <laughs> I was just like a fish out of water as a flight lieutenant. And this is long history. No one would even know. I'm a wing commander now in the, in the Air Force Reserves and no one would know this, that, you know, <laughs> 16 years ago. It was 2008 that I, I started there. Um, I laugh about it now, but it was pretty scary at the time. There you go. There mm. you go. And it was, so was that before... That was before, uh, after politics, right? No, no. I, um, I, yeah, so I had worked for a federal MP the year before that in 2007, and I joined the Air Force Reserves that year. So I thought I was working for the, the Howard government, and this is when Kevin 07, Kevin Rudd yes. was uh, John Howard's competitor. And in my head, I thought, oh, we'll get reelected and I can just do some Air Force Reserve work on the side. Didn't work out that way. In fact, John Howard actually lost his seat. It was the work choices year and... It was, you know, he'd been in government for many years. And so by that stage, I had gone through all the Defence Force recruiting hoops. It was about six months of recruiting. And they said, we'll, we'll put you on full time. So I had, <laughs> it was either unemployment or that at the time. Um, and so then, yeah, I was in for a couple of years. And then I went to Afghanistan. So I joined 2008 as my first year. Went to Afghanistan 2011. Yeah. And then came back from Afghanistan then I ran. So my, my federal campaign for the seat of Newcastle, federal yep. seat of Newcastle, was from 2012 to 2013. I was 29 and it was an 18-month campaign. So, um, yeah, it was pretty long. It was pretty high profile at the time. We, we put a lot of effort into it as well in what's always been a Labor seat. So the federal seat of Newcastle is the only seat since Federation, since yep. like many years <laughs> yeah. ago, uh, that's always been held by Labor. It's Federation 1901. Yes. Yeah, okay. I was going to say it, but I questioned myself around this. 1900, 1901. The yeah, reason I remember that is because I remember being in primary school and we got this like little gold coin oh. and it was the Federation. And I think it was 2001, but then it was going back. I don't know. Anyway, it's just stuck in my brain. Yeah, well, so that's good. It yeah. obviously worked to jog your memory. It was 1901, not that I was around. But yes, yeah, so since Federation, it's always been Labor. Yeah. Okay. The only original seat. And so I was running the other side and, uh, you know, it was, it was an interesting an interesting experience. I, I don't regret it, but it was hard. 18 yeah. months, you don't get paid to be a candidate. So I was working for Defence right up until the last minute. I had to resign uh, from my full-time role. And then after the election, I got to go back, which was yeah. great. But, so there's yeah. a common occurrence here. You're putting yourself in these positions that aren't necessarily a monetary value, but is it more for the experience, the type of people that you're hanging out with, the relationships that you're building? Do you know what it is? It's opportunities that come your way. And um, it's next week, I'm about to go to Hawaii. Um, my business coach has hired the most expensive house in Oahu in Hawaii. I think it's a $30 million house. She's paid 100000 US for the, the month. And I had an opportunity to go and it's a ridiculous amount of money. I'm going for a, a week retreat with her. Those opportunities, when they come your way, I just believe you should take them if you can, if you are able to. That's what credit cards are for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, and so I had an opportunity to run. So I took it, I had an opportunity to go to Afghanistan. I took it. I've just always had this belief when opportunities come your way and you think, wow, well, how many opportunities do you get like this? take them. We only get one life. 
Exactly. Yeah. And you often like a lot, I think life is a, a lot about luck as well, but you also have to create your own luck. And like you said, you put yourself in these positions that you takes you, well, who knows where, right? And now Absolutely. you're going to Hawaii. Yeah. And I just, in life, I just don't want to have any stone left unturned, if that makes sense. So even in my federal campaign, and I ran in state election when I had a brand new baby in 2019. Congratulations. I, yeah, thank you. I've got two kids now, <laughs> yeah. but um, I had my first child and I was in the middle of this state election campaign. It was crazy. But I got to the end of both the federal and state campaign and I ran local in the middle of that and got elected in, in Port Stephens as a councillor. I just didn't want to get to the end of it and think, oh, we should have spent more on Facebook ads or we should have door knocked more or should have done more public community events. I didn't want to have any regrets. And I feel comfortable, even though I didn't win the federal or state seat, I came out of it thinking I gave it everything, Yeah. took the opportunities, gave it everything. There was nothing more I could have done. And that's a really great place to be in. Definitely. What's harder being a mum or um, putting yourself in, you know, dealing with politicians? politics and being a mom being a mom <laughs> see it's funny like politics um jumping up on stage reading the news all that sort of thing is second nature to me now i've done it for 20 years um but yeah being a mom is very hard i, I couldn't i feel like i couldn't be a stay-at-home mom yeah it's just so full-on and kids are hard man <laughs> i mean as an entrepreneur and, and so many women who have kids will relate to this when you have kids, and I went to the Ozmanpreneur Awards the other day, and I, I got a, um, an award there, and there were so many speeches, and one of the winners said, when you have kids, it's an extra barrier. We're very fortunate and grateful to be mums, to be parents, but when you're an entrepreneur running a business and you have little kids, and I've got a two and three-year-old, they're only yeah. 18 months apart, my boys, I love them, but it is an extra barrier because you don't get as much sleep. You're on their schedule. They wake up at 5.30 and you might have worked until 1 a.m. doing something amazing in your business, but you have to get up when they get up. So it's just an extra barrier and it makes it a bit more challenging. Uh, but at the same time, because I love my business and I'm putting everything into it, I'm a better mum. Definitely. Mm. Do, you, do you think they're absorbing a lot of the, the public speaking and the business uh, indirectly? I, well, I'm not sure about the public speaking, but I hope that they, you know, as they get older, will see an inspiration in their mum that really works hard. I work hard, like like you, you know, we do sometimes 80 hours a week. We yeah. And it's not just nine to five, Monday to Friday. As an entrepreneur, as a buyer's agent, as a real estate agent, you just put the hours and you put everything you've got into your professional life. And I hope, because sometimes you do have guilt about that. You know, I, I, I don't, I put them to bed, I'll come home and I'll put them to bed and we'll get them bathed and, and to dinner and then I'm doing work. You know, I'm doing work up until midnight a lot of the nights. Yeah. Or I'll get a babysitter in while I stay in the office one or two nights a week. And you feel guilty about that. So I hope that I have some comfort in the fact that at least that's they're, they're seeing their mum really giving it her all and and devoting time and working hard and seeing the results pay off. Definitely. Love that. Amazing. I think it's so true. Like, I, I was the only child growing up and, like, I don't know where my work ethic came from, but... I'm just, I'm naturally driven, right? I don't need someone to tell me what to do. If I'm not working, I feel like I'm being lazy, whatever. But I always m remember mum being very proactive, hardworking. And I think being as a baby and growing up, you just naturally absorb that and want to and look up to that. So I'm sure that your, your children will, you know, absorb it as well. I hope so. I hope so. That's how I comfort myself when I have the guilts, <laughs> you know, because you think, oh... But I, I try not to work weekends. I really, I, I do give it a long, long hours during the week, 
but yeah, I try not to work weekends, so I balance it out that way. Have you? Ha- have they had public speaking lessons yet? <laughs> no, they're only two and three. I feel like they don't need it. The youngest one, gee, he's a real performer already. <laughs> but um, yeah, maybe, maybe I, I don't know. I haven't thought about that. You're asking all the questions that no one asks. I love it. See, that's what happens when you don't have any script. You just <laughs> go with the flow, <laughs> and you don't know anything about the person you're interviewing. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> it's good. Yeah. I like it. And so let's take us up to now. Um, obviously, you're, you're teaching other people because speaking is like the most powerful tool you can have, right? Like before in aviation, you know, I was just on the tools didn't really care about getting in front of the cam- camera. But now that I'm in front of clients, um, agents as well, how you project your voice, how you, your body language, it all shows whether you're, um, you have the right information or you have the right confidence to go into a negotiation, for, for example. It's, it's such a powerful tool that you can use. And obviously, it's a learnt skill as well. Um, what, are, what do you find that most people are struggling with, especially in, the, in today's um, era? Yeah, it's a great question because it really is a skill. I mean, Jack Henderson was saying to me when he came on my podcast, Mark Burris of the world, even himself, doesn't necessarily mean they're the best in their industry, but they're the most well-known because they put themselves out there as a speaker. Um, People struggle with this nerves and fears. And it's really funny because 90% of my clients are male. The one-on-one clients are male. And they say to me all the time, so typical CEO, managing director of a business, running seven, eight figure business, they're always the same, like my clients. And they'll say to me, I used to be fine when I was 19, 20. I'd get up there at my best friend's wedding as the best man and I'd do a speech off the cuff. Now I'm 40 or 45, I've just got this fear. It's like the stakes got higher or something and they've just, something's come over them they feel nervous about. And so it's just a mindset shift in a lot of cases mastering those messages, rehearsing, preparing for the worst possible scenario that could happen. And you think, what's the worst that could happen? You trip over, you forget your lines. Well, let's workshop a plan for that. If that happens, what are we going to do? And that might be, let's have our notes here. Let's have a little, oh, I just completely lost my train of thought. I was going to say something then. If I remember it, I'll come back to it, but let's move on. Something like that ready if they do have a you know lose of train of thought, they've got that ready to go or they've got a prompt or if they do fall over, they can make a joke, all those sorts of things that we just kind of workshop. And it really comes down to rehearsing and just the mindset, I think, for a lot of my clients. And then some people are naturally gifted, you think? Yeah, look, some people are, but at the same time, there's no one I can't train. Yeah, yeah. I've trained people who don't speak English very well, who get really, really nervous, who have stutters. Uh, a lot of women who, women and men, who just get so nervous, they're worried about forgetting, they're worried about the judgment, they're worried about the rejection, they're worried about going too fast, too slow. There's always different things that makes people nervous. Um, so there's no one I can't train. Yeah, sure, some are born amazing yeah. at speaking, but anyone can learn public speaking anyone can get confident at it definitely i think and what about uh looking in people's eyes i when i ever speak i always like i'm okay listening to someone and looking at someone's eyes but i naturally like always look away when speaking to someone i don't oh, know why i haven't noticed that oh there you go maybe but i don't the fact do it that you're much. aware of that is, is that great. is that the biggest thing right just being aware like mm. your arms your eyes yes whether you're standing awkwardly Absolutely. Pausing. Yeah. So a lot of people, I'll say to them, what's your disfluency, your verbal tick, that your arm, your R, your like, your, 
I had a client the other day and he kept saying, in this space. <laughs> After every, it sounds funny, but it was really annoying. Uh, he'd say, you know, and I, I've got to go out there and we'll work on, work on this together in this space. And there's so many people working on it in this space, just every sentence. And he wasn't even aware he was doing it. That was it. his filler word. Yeah. Yeah, right. Yeah. I think it was just a habit. Yeah. Uh, you'll never eliminate those ums and ahs, but you can reduce them. But it's really important that you are aware. So if you're aware, I mean, I haven't even noticed that about you. Now I'm going to be looking in your eyes all the time when you're speaking. But yeah, if you're aware and you just make a conscious effort to stop that, whether it's just going to pause every time you say um or ah, or really knowing your material well, so that way you can focus on other things like the eye contact yeah. uh, or the, you know, you're shifting left and right all the time or you're moving your hands too much, which I always say, by the way, don't try and stop that. I have a lot of clients who don't know what to do with their hands or they move their hands too much. And I just say to them, just keep doing that, but keep it down low. Yeah. Because if you put it up near your face, it's taking away from the message. Uh, so yeah, it's just really a matter of being aware and, and trying to reduce it, not necessarily eliminate it. There you go. And especially like listening to podcasts and TED talks and um, on YouTube, etc. Like hearing someone that's really well spoken, really well articulated, someone with a lot of confidence and like the the volumes projected well you just start listening to them a lot more, right? Whereas someone's very timid and held back and not sure of themselves. You're like, oh, is this person even like know what they're talking about? Even though they might be very switched on. Absolutely. I have worked with lots of CEOs and managing directors and, and military leaders and politicians, yeah, who will go into a meeting. They don't know anything about what the meeting's about. They Even in the middle of the meeting, they'll, they won't know. But because they can communicate and they can just command the room... People just go, wow, this guy switched on. <laughs> and then I've walked out with them before and they've said, I have no idea what the meeting was about. Like, well, everyone thought you did. So, yeah, absolutely. People gravitate towards the best communicators. You don't need to be the best at what you do. You just need to, it's almost faking it until you make it. You know, people are attracted to that confidence, that you know, that, the clear speaking. It's, re it's really a confidence thing, Sam, to yeah. be honest. And it's the perception, right? Like having the right story there, making it interesting, getting people switched on. Same with like when we do sign up meetings for clients, like you, you may not know, have the best property knowledge, but if you sound like you're an expert, they'll look up to you and then they're like, oh, okay, he's gonna guide me into you know finding the right property. So absolutely, in real estate agents, I work with a lot of real estate agents and I, I love working with real estate agents because they're passionate, they're different. Um, no, no two agents are the same and, you know, buyer's agents are the same as well. It's a crazy roller coaster life, but I know you love it and so many of your listeners love it. And um, same thing, like I would list my, my property with someone who is coming across confident and is entertaining and is inspiring and educating me. And yeah, and so I think it's really, really important that we, we get these skills because people are attracted to that and you will do better in your industry if you can speak better amazing hmm. well let's uh let's wrap it up because we've been uh we've been chatting for a bit now so I've, i feel like this has been um a very enjoyable time i've learned a lot a lot of you so pleasure having you on the on the podcast oh thank you you didn't even asked me about my course coming up sam oh. <laughs> that was the next question oh was it <laughs> that's why i'm here <laughs> no well, I, I was gonna ask well let's talk about the course mm. and then, and then... <laughs> i won't leave until we talk about it Let's talk about the course because actually people will find that very interesting mm. actually because I know I know that 
you know, it's it's scary for some people to get up in front of people. I know for the very first time in like BNI or like Toastmasters where I used to go to, I was scared shitless in, in front of like 20, 30 people. Um, but again, it's just overcoming those fears and putting this, yourself in that situation. So someone coming into your course, like what are they going to expect and, and what are they going to get out of it? So my course specifically is called Paid to Speak. So it's teaching people how to get paid to speak. And so last year in December, I, I've done a few keynote gigs here and there, thousand here, five grand there. And it was December last year when we had the council election. So I wasn't running anymore, but my other half was, it was coming up to Christmas. It was a crazy busy time. And I had a client come to me and they said, can you speak for a day to about 50 of our managers? Couldn't fit it in. So I just went, fuck it. I'm going to charge them. I'm going to quote them $30,000 because I know they'll say no, they'll balk at that. I don't have time to do it anyway. Normally, I probably would have charged maybe 5000 for a full day in Sydney. Anyway, 45 minutes, they accepted the quote, $30,000 for one day. And it ended up being online in the end. Um, but so it didn't have to leave my house. But it was actually a real milestone moment for me because I thought I've been undercharging all these years. And I've been telling my clients and friends and colleagues to undercharge. And so for the next five months after that, up until about May this year, I created a course showing people how to not only get paid to speak, what topics sell, how much to charge, where to find these gigs, but also for people who weren't feeling they were ready, I've got a whole section on how to get ready, how to feel confident, how to present with purpose, how to master your messages, how to get rid of nerves and fears. Because people were saying, oh, I could never be a paid speaker. So I've created a whole section in the course on how to feel confident, but you never are ready. You're never ready. So you've got to just put yourself out there. And once you start doing these paid gigs, more flow on, you know, you, you'll speak and someone in the audience will come up to you and say, that was amazing. We've got a leadership day. Can you speak? And so I launched the course in June, sold $33,000 worth of sales in eight wow. days. Strong marketing. Eight days. Camp, eight days. It was open from Tuesday to Tuesday. Yeah. So I opened the door. I'm opening it again on the 8th of November. It'll be even bigger because the people who signed up are now making money from speaking, whether it's a side hustle and they're getting a couple of grand here and there, or they're actually full on going into the professional speaking world. They're getting the results from the course. So I know it works. I know what marketing works as well. So having that limited launch sort of formula where I open the doors and close them, People sort of sense that urgency and I have testimonials from last time as well. And yeah, I think I'm on a real winner here because of the content and the results that people are getting. And you've got a bit for everyone, right? Like, but you can have like your, just your entry level and then you've got in-person one-on-one coaching. I do. Yeah. So I've always done one-on-one -on -one coaching all the time. You know, I'm only, it's hard to scale because so many people want me for that one-on-one. -on -one. That's when I mostly have the male clients. I mean, it's, it's so strange actually, because 90% of my clients are male running seven, eight figure businesses, fairly confident. They just want to take it to the next level, or they've got this inner fear that's starting to creep up with the course paid to speak. Most of the people who signed up, I have to, there's probably about 80% were females female coaches oh, to be exact or female business owners. So really, really interesting how um, the, the demographic changed. But yeah, so I still do the one-on-one -on -one stuff all the time and um, love that. So all my sessions are two to three hours. There's no one I can't train. I'll sit down with anyone, take them through tips and tricks, put them on the spot. I'll often film it and say, 
here's where you could have gone better. Here's where you fucked up. Um, let's do it again. Yeah. You know, it's a very draining session because it's very intense. It's me focused on you for a whole two, to yeah. half, yeah. two and a half to three hours. But then all my sessions also include a follow-up rehearsal. 50% of people use it. The rest just kind of like to know that it's there if they need it, if they've got a big gig coming up or yeah. they may speak at something and record it and then send it to me and ask for my feedback. That's all included because we'll do the session. They may not need to use the, the actual skills for a couple of months after. Yeah, beautiful. And it sounds like the online courses, you've put a lot of energy, a lot of love into that. And that's where, um, you know, you're, you're very passionate about. Absolutely. And the other thing I'm passionate about is I've now got a public speaking academy. There you go. Because people did the course and they're like, I want more. How can I get more? And I was sort of like, well, that's it. <laughs> the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so now I have an academy and it's it's great. It's only a couple of hundred dollars a month. They get a masterclass. I did one today, a group masterclass and a group coaching session with me. People love it because it's so small and they're getting that personalized coaching. They get the recordings. They tell me what topics they want. And so I probably in the end, once I do this next launch, I might even turn that to what we call evergreen. So you can buy that paid to speak course at any time. You don't have to wait till I open the doors. Ah, okay. And instead I'll live launch the public speaking academy Yeah. because people are getting results and they know if right now it's only $200 a month. And they're getting two sessions with me a month for that with only two or three others on the Zoom call. Do you have a full-time videographer? No. Ah, there you go. You, pro you should document it all as well. That'd be pretty cool. You mean like document what? My life? Yeah. Like that, <laughs> well, that's how I met Jack. So basically, I quit my job and doing an aircraft maintenance engineer. And I moved in with him. And then when he started the buyer's agency, Sphere, I was like, fuck, I don't know what to do. I'll come work for you. He's like, oh, what do you want to do? I was like, I don't know. He's like, oh, come and follow me around with the camera. I can't believe that. So you were full-time following him around. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. Quit my job. Didn't know what, I didn't know, I didn't even know how to turn on a camera. I had it. <laughs> it's on now. Yeah, it? it's on. <laughs> the red light's on. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, literally didn't know anything, learn everything off YouTube. And that's how I learned so much um, so quickly in the, in the BA space because I was, absorbing him, seeing how he was interacting with agents, how he was interacting with clients. And then I was editing as well. So it was like triple download constantly. So that's, um, it was like doing my apprenticeship, but like fast forward so quickly. Wow. And so what were you just shooting anything for TikTok, yeah. just piece to cameras, yeah. anything I'd overlay? Just, I'd, I'd go to meetings. I'd go into like breakfast meetings, uh, into client meetings, just following me around the office. I remember like we're doing an inspection inside of a property and it was like my first, I think it was our first day and we'd walk into the Eastern suburbs and people were just like, <laughs> what a tool yeah. about you or Jack, <laughs> both. Yeah. Just like, why has this guy got a camera just in the middle? <laughs> Did you just get some weird looks? Yeah. <laughs> it was so funny. But look, that's obviously how Jack got a lot of um, traction, right? From the socials because mm. no one was doing it. Yeah. And, um, and it's really cool to look back on those clips because it's like going back in time. Do you think that we've missed the boat now? So if, if I got a videographer to follow me around. No it, one's it, doing it. Really? No. Nah. Everyone, everyone does like the, the more polished stuff like mm. podcasts. and But no one does the raw behind the scenes and people find that interesting right maybe i should yeah and it'd probably be cheaper as well if you had a full-time videographer just doing, filming doing... anything and everything yeah yeah maybe i should try it for a week you got any people here i could yeah <laughs> well shani well, shani got that's how we found matt oh yeah right he, like you get like a uni student or something like that yeah even if it's like two or three days a week you know yeah no it's a great idea i might try it yeah
hopefully it's interesting content Definitely. behind the scenes. I think the stuff that is like, let's just say you're on the phone to a client. The best conversations are, let's say I'm in a negotiation with an agent, having that like being a third person, like not knowing that you're there, listening in, people find that really, because it's real. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, no, you've got a really good point there. Yeah. I wonder why no one else is doing it, because Jack really has just, you know, I was actually at a dinner um, a couple of months ago and someone said, Jack Henderson, he's just come out of nowhere. He's exploded on the scene out of nowhere. And I asked him about that actually. And he said, well, sort of, but not really. It's only because I just put myself out there on TikTok yeah. and he's a bit controversial as well with the yeah. things that he yeah. says. And, and in, obviously in Australia, everyone looks at you as a bit of a wanker. If you... <laughs> Whereas in the States, it's completely different, you know? Yeah, but I mean, Australians will happily watch the content, right? Yeah. 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 yeah no, you exactly. might be on to yeah. something there. there Thanks for that. Um, but yeah, last question was, uh, let's, let's, like, let's just say you're, you're 20 years old. What would you tell yourself um, what you know now? Oh, wow. Because that's kind of implying that you've got regrets, isn't it? <laughs> no, nah, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, wow. Probably would... Because life just happens, right? Like yeah. you, you don't know what you don't know. You don't know what you don't know. But like looking back, reflecting on it, you could have been like, "Oh yeah, this." But how I like to put it is that if I didn't make this mistake, then I wouldn't be in this position right now. Yeah, yeah, true. I would just say keep doing what you're doing. Don't worry, because I was under pressure to party at uni. Like literally, everyone was at the pub in Bathurst, and I was just going everywhere and staying in backpacker hostels. And I questioned it at the time thinking, am I doing the right thing? I'm just throwing away all my uni years. And I probably would tell myself, keep going because it is going to pay off. Because I remember when I graduated uni, a lot of those fellow students didn't have a job and they were ringing me up saying, got any contacts you could share? And I was working in television in Tamworth at the time, having worked a whole year before that at 2GB before we graduated. And so I probably would just reassure myself you know, no, you're not giving up because I've made it up for the partying later <laughs> in life. You know, I love it now. I've got a great life now. So I probably would just reassure 20 year old Jamie, no, you just keep doing what you're doing. Don't succumb to the partying lifestyle that uni students do Yeah, because you are going to, what you're putting in right now will pay off. And it did. And it sounds like you obviously had some goals set in place and you had a good vision of where you wanted to be. And that would have helped a lot. You know, having those distractions not uh, inhibit it in your life. Yeah, absolutely. Goals so important. I always and, and they, the goalposts keep moving too. Yeah. That's the hard thing as an entrepreneur. So you know, I was like, I want to work on television. I want to go to Afghanistan. I want to do politics. I want to become a mum. I want to launch this course. And I my goal was twenty thousand for my course. I made thirty three. So now the goalposts have moved again. Right, they're fifty to a hundred thousand for my next launch. Uh, and then, you know, I want to, I want to earn this amount per year. It, the goalposts continually move, which is a bit sad in a way, because you never, you often don't sort of stop and appreciate and celebrate your success. You're always aiming for the next thing. So I think that's probably just a lesson learned there. Well, something I should tell myself more often, stop and smell the roses more often. Definitely. Amazing. Appreciate your time. It was lovely to have you on. Thanks, Sam. I appreciate Where can we it. find you on the socials? Yep, so like, my handle on everything. So TikTok, Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook is just at Jamie Abbott, J-A-I-M-I-E, two Bs, two Ts in Abbott, or just my website, jamieabbott.com. Amazing. There you go, folks. Insight into Jamie Abbott's life. Thanks, Sam. Beautiful. Beautiful.